Well, good morning again, Gateway family. It is so good to see you this morning. What a blessing hearing the, our children singing, wasn't that? That was incredible. I hope you'll encourage them when you see them after the service and in the week to come. That is our first through sixth graders. If you don't know, during our kids' Bible study on Sunday mornings, the last 10 to 15 minutes of the Sunday school time, our kids all gather together with Laurie, and she teaches them great songs of the faith. Tell them more in this beautiful theology of who God is. And so if your kids are not yet involved in our kids' Bible study in some ways, I hope you'll bring them in early so they get the great teaching from the Gospel Project for kids' curriculum reading, as well as get to learn to worship the Lord through song and just the, the greatness of who He is. So, Laurie, thank you for teaching them. What a blessing to see our young people grasping those truths. And we're thankful for all you do to minister them and to teach them both in your teaching in Sunday mornings and in song as well. We are grateful. We'll find Ephesians chapter 3, Gateway Family, as we continue our journey through Paul's letter to the people in Ephesus. And while you're finding Ephesians chapter 3, I want to ask you a question this morning. And that question is, is anything too hard for God to do? Is there anything that's too hard for God to do? We've been singing about God's power this morning. It's one thing for us to sing it, but do we really believe that there's nothing impossible for God to do? Now, if I ask you, I think all of you would give the correct church answer. Is anything too hard for God? You'd all say, no, of course not. Nothing is too hard for God. God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. There's nothing impossible for him. But friends, what do our everyday lives show? Do in our everyday lives, do we act like we really believe that nothing is too hard for God? Perhaps you're in a marriage that's struggling and close to falling apart. Do you really believe that God can heal that marriage? Perhaps you're at a place in life where you're dealing with some type of a strange relationship with a child, with a friend, with a parent, with a neighbor, with a co-worker. Is it impossible for God to heal that relationship? Perhaps you're trapped by some sin, lust, pornography, anger, lying, whatever. It's been a stronghold in your life for year after year after year. Is anything too hard for God to do? Can God really deliver you from that thing that has enslaved you for so long? Perhaps you're struggling with thoughts of bitterness or resentment or unforgiveness or anger in your heart. Is anything too hard for God? Do you really believe and are you praying like God really can change those deep-seated attitudes in your heart? Is there anything too hard for God to do? As we come to the end of Ephesians chapter 3 this morning, we're coming to a very big transition. Because all of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 was all about our identity in Christ. And we've seen the riches of who God has said we are in Christ. That we've been chosen, we've been adopted, we are seated at His table, that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place. And that's just to scratch the surface of the greatness of who God says, or what God says He's done for us. But friends, we know what God says, but in a lot of our lives, how we believe that is very different. There's a gap in our lives between what we've just read about who God says we are and how we actually feel like we really are in God's sight. And there's a gap there. Well, we'll come to this transition now because chapters 4, 5, and 6 shifts from our identity in Christ to now how do we live because of it. As we get into the next three chapters starting next week, we're going to see so many commands, so many exhortations of how we're to live because of what Christ has done for us. In fact, next week we're going to begin with a text, Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. But friends, as we come face to face with that, those texts, we're once again see what God requires of us. We see where we fall short. And there's going to be a gap there in our lives between what God requires of us and what we are actually living like. Friends, the reality is every single one of us has a gap in our life, a gap in our belief between what we believe about ourselves and what God says about us. There's gaps in our lives and our behavior between what God says we're to be and how we're to and what we're actually living that out. And those gaps in our life force us back to the question: Is anything too hard for God to do? Again, we may answer right that nothing is impossible for God, but the way we approach those gaps in our life, those gaps in our belief, those gaps in our behavior, often indicate we really are not very confident that God can do anything. 
and pastoral ministry in my own life as well, when we all come face to face with those gaps in our belief and those gaps in our behavior between what God requires and where we are, what I find is often our approach doesn't show we really believe God is all-powerful. We tend to either despair, throw up our hands and be like, well, I really can't change or I really can't believe that or this can never really be free, and we kind of lose heart. We become very content with a gap between the way we're thinking and the way we know that God wants us to think about ourselves and about Him. And some of you right now are at a place where you're very content with a gap in your beliefs between who God says you are and how you're feeling about yourself. But the other approach some of us take, if it's not despairing, is, well, we try to fix it ourselves. We see that gap in our behavior, the gap in our beliefs, and we decide we're going to resolve it ourselves. We're going to get the newest book, get our new accountability group, get a new accountability partner, go to the newest conference to fix whatever problem there is because we see that gap in our lives. Friends, if you looked at my bookshelf in my office, you'd be stunned at how many marriage books I have bought when I've come face-to-face with a gap between how I'm supposed to be living with my family and where I actually am. And I'm going to resolve it myself, get a new book, and surely it's going to fix the problems. But friends, if we despair or we try to fix it ourselves, we're not acting like we believe that God is one who is all-powerful. We're trying to take care of it on our own. And those will not work. Those will not create lasting change. Friends, what you and I need is what's in the last two verses of Ephesians chapter 3. And this beautiful transition between who we are in Christ, verses chapters 1 through 3, and now how do we live because of it, chapters 4, 5, and 6, we find the answer to what to do with those gaps in our life. We find our beliefs not lining up with what they should be. We find those gaps between our behavior and what God requires of us. The answer for what we need is not to despair, not to try harder on our own strength. The answer is right here for us in these beautiful two verses that end up chapter 3 and transition us to the next section of Ephesians. So as we come to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 this morning, as we read the text, I want you to look for the answer. What is the hope? What is the hope for us? When we find gaps in our belief, gaps in our behavior, what is the hope for us in being changed? We don't have to despair. No, we don't have to fix it ourselves. So what is the hope? Can God really enable me to believe all he said that I am in Christ? Can I really change in these ways that he wants to change me? So be looking for what the hope is. And right now, as we come to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. I'm reading out the English Standard Version. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for your word. And Father, I'm thankful for these two verses, to realize in these short two verses the the wonders of your power, the wonders of who you are and what you can do. And Lord, I pray today your word would come alive for us. God, for that person who's been despairing because of things in their life or having a hard time embracing who they are in Christ, today would you let your word just breathe the life into their soul. That the despair and the just being downcast would go away and they'd be filled with the hope of who you have said they are. And Father, for those who've been trying to fix themselves and and been trying to change themselves and keep realizing how futile it is, I pray today you would turn them from trying in their own strength to seeing your power and who you are. And Lord, if someone's in here with a stronghold of a sin in their life, a stronghold of an attitude that displeases you, a stronghold of a broken relationship, whatever it is, God, today would you give them hope. Hope not in themselves, but hope in the gospel power to transform them and to transform those situations so that you receive all the glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So one thing I want us to see from this text in these two verses this morning is simply this. God can do more than we can imagine. Just simply, God can do more than we can imagine. Friends, when there's gaps between who God says you are and what you're feeling about yourself, when there's gaps between what God requires you and how you're living, don't despair. Don't try in your own strength. Rather, turn your focus to this. God can do more 
than we can imagine. God can help you believe what he said about you, that you are a well-provided-for son and daughter of God in ways you don't think is even possible today. God can overcome the sin struggles in your life and give you holiness in ways that you don't even think is possible today. God can do more than any of us can imagine. I want you to see that in our text this morning. As first, we need to see the context, because this is not written in isolation. There's always we need to know where it's coming around this text. So look at the beginning of verse 20. Very first word, now. What Paul is writing in these verses is not an isolated, standalone promise here. This is something that is tied to everything he's talking about. It's flowing out of what he's just said. What is the now coming from? Well, way back in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul has begun to pray. But as he's starting to, he now pauses and he reminds people of this mystery of the gospel, this mystery that Jew and Gentile together, people who are hostile enemies, can now come together as one church and be united in Christ. He pauses and he reflects on these amazing eternal purposes of God. And then he pauses and prays. What Seth so beautifully taught us last week, he prays for us. He prays for unity that's grounded in Christ's love. He prays for us that we could comprehend the unsearchable love of God. He prays we'll be filled with the fullness of God. And that's a really high lofty prayer. Can enemies become unified? Can we experience the fullness of God? Can we in our finiteness understand and comprehend the fullness of God's love? In light of all that, this seems almost insurmountable and impossible in human strength. We come to verse 20 now. These things are all possible and so much more. Why? Because of God. Because now to him who is able. Notice in verse 20 here our confident, what our confidence is in. Can the Father really do all these things? Well, absolutely. Verse 20 tells us now to him who is able. This word able is the Greek word dunamai. You've heard me talk about it before. It's where we get the English word. Does it sound familiar? Dunamai, dynamite. It's where we transliterate the English word dynamite from. This word means great power. So think about it, dynamite. The thing that can blow out the side of a mountain to put an interstate through. The thing that can blow out a hole under the ocean to put a tunnel in. The thing that can destroy the strongest building man can make. That's the idea of this word here. To God who has, now to him who has dunamite, who has dynamite power. And friends, God has great power. If you remember, he spoke and the world came into being. Jesus speaks and dead come back to life. God can part the ocean and create dry ground for his people to walk across. And so, so much more. And Paul tries to capture the immenseness of that power in verse 20. Now to him who was able to do far more abundantly. Paul's struggling to even find adequate words to describe how vast God's power is. And this phrase, far more abundantly, literally means infinitely more. That think of anything to think about, and infinitely more, God has dynamite power, dynamite power to do that and so much more. But more than what? You can look at verse 20. Now to him who was able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask. Friends, pause. I pray that that would grip our hearts with hope here. God can do more than anything you or I could ask. God has this dunamite, this dynamite power that's strong enough to accomplish not only anything we ask, but more than we could even ask for. Think of the biggest request you could pray to God. Think of the biggest thing you wish God could do, and he can do far more than even the loftiest request we could ever bring him. But even that is not sufficient description of God's vast power. So Paul continues, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or all that we think as well. Friends, anything we can think or imagine is small compared to what God can do. The biggest request our little tiny finite minds can come up with pales in comparison to what God can do. Think of the biggest dream you could dream of how God can move and that is nothing in the hands of the Almighty because he is so powerful. God can do more than we can imagine, friends. But friends, God's power at work is not just some impersonal thing in the distance. 
is not just, well, God blessed the missionary in China. Oh, great, God did that. Well, yes, he can do that. He's all-powerful. He can start church planting movements in China and turn a mass of people to followers of Christ. But, friends, this is also at work in your life as well. God's power, this dunamai power, is not just limited to what's happening on the mission field. This is at work in our lives as well. Look at verse 20 again and notice where Paul is honing in on where God's power is at work. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work, at work where? At work where? Pause for a minute on that. The same power that speaks the universe into being, the same power that can raise the dead, the same power that can part the Red Sea, and on and on we can go, is the same power at work where? Within us. God's power is at work in us in very personal ways in our lives. He is actively working in the lives of all of his children. If you are a follower of Christ, if you are seated at his table, everything of Ephesians 1 through 3, if you know you're adopted, that you're a child of God, that you have a seat at his table, that you've been forgiven, that you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, then your confidence here is in verse 20 that he has his power at work within us. How is his power working in our lives? It's working through the Holy Spirit who dwells Within us. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 for just a moment, because we saw the Holy Spirit early in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, we were told, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So think about that, friends. We talked about that. When we come to faith in Christ, one of the blessings we have is the Holy Spirit fills us when we trust Christ, and we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Yes, it is all his work, but being sealed is not some passive thing. It's not the Holy Spirit puts a stamp on us, don't go to hell, you're fine now, go do what you want to do. When the Holy Spirit seals us, he starts working within us. He begins to convict us of sin in our lives, of wrong thinking in our life. He begins to teach us, he begins to guide us, he begins to change us and transform us from the inside out. Being sealed with the Holy Spirit is not just some passive thing, it's him actively working in our lives. And he's the one who then is giving us the grace, the strength to believe that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. He's the one who's convicting us of sin and those sin strongholds have entangled us for years. He's the one who is setting us free. As the Holy Spirit works, he's doing verse 20 in our lives. Back to verse 20 of Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. That's the power of the Holy Spirit working within us. Friends, when you think and you read Ephesians 1 through 3 and you think, I know he says I have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, but I don't feel like it. I know that he says I have a seat at his table in heaven, but I don't really feel like it. Your hope is not in yourself. Your hope is that he, the Holy Spirit, dwelling within you, who sealed you, will give you a belief in embracing these promises much greater than anything you can imagine you could actually believe today. When you see the gap in your life between how God calls you to live and where you are, you don't have to despair in that. He, the Holy Spirit, who sealed you, who is living within you, will give you grace upon grace to enable you to walk in holiness in ways you don't think you can walk in holiness today. He will set you free from sin patterns that you don't think you can get free of right now. Friends, there is no belief, no behavior, no thought, no pattern of your life that the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, working within you, cannot change. There is nothing that is too hard for God to do. The question is, do we believe that? Do we really believe God can do more than we can imagine? His sovereign power, his massive sovereign power works in us and works on our behalf. Do we really believe the sovereign massive power of God is at work in us and changing us, that he is at work on our behalf? But friends, yes, we can believe that. And yes, we can be sure. The problem is that what we're typically looking to as our anchor is not what we need to be looking to. 
if our hope in God doing this is that, well, he's just going to respond to my faithfulness, then we're all up a creek without a paddle, so to speak. If this is all, our only hope is, well, if I'm just faithful, God might do this, then we have no hope, friends, because that's a hope in us that will fail. If our hope is what so much of popular Christianity in America teaches, God thinks you're so amazing, and God thinks you're so wonderful, he's going to do this for you. Friends, there's no hope in that because we're not so amazing and so wonderful. Scripture is very clear. Our righteous deeds are like filthy rags to God. What is the hope that God will actually work his sovereign power in us through the Holy Spirit? Well, the hope is in something much bigger than us, friends. It's something much beyond, beyond us, something that God's committed to even more so than he's committed to us. What is it? Well, we've already seen glimpses of it all throughout Ephesians. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 11, what is God most committed to? And he's so going to do it that we know for sure that he's going to work this power in us. Let's take a quick look through back Ephesians 1 through 3 real quick. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So why do we have an inheritance? What's God done? Why is he doing this? Verse 12, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to what? To what? The praise of his glory. Whose glory? His, not ours. The reason God has given us inheritance is not about us. It's about Him being glorified. We see the next two verses, verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? Why are we sealed with the Holy Spirit? What's the next phrase to what? The praise of His glory. Whose glory? His glory. We're filled with the Holy Spirit, not because we're so amazing, but because God is going to glorify himself. We see a glimpse of this in chapter 3, verse 10 already. In chapter three, ten, it's not the same terminology, but the same idea. It said that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God has ordained the church not so people look and go, wow, they're so cool. But he's ordained the church so that his wisdom is on display, so his glory is on display. We see that in verse 16 of chapter 3 as well. From whom every family in heaven and earth is named, verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He's strengthening us out of the riches of his glory. He strengthens us for his glory. Friends, it's not about us. It's about him. So how can we be certain that verse 20 is true? How can we be certain that if we're a child of God, his power is going to be at work in our behalf, in our lives? Well, it's the same reason, verse 21. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever Amen. Friends, if we are really a child of God, if God has really rescued us and has saved us, then we can be confident that his power can do more in our lives than we imagine. Not because we're amazing, not because it's about us, but because it's all about God being glorified. God is committed to his glory. God's committed to his greatness being seen. And he's committed to having people worship him in response. And not just worship him for one day, but forever. Look at verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Paul's not trying to, is struggling with words or repeating himself throughout all generations forever and ever. He's basically saying, as much time as you can imagine, God is committed to his glory being known forever and ever and ever. And friends, that can be hard for a lot of us. How can, God, how can it be good for God to be committed to his glory? Because if we're committed to our own glory, it's called pride and it's a sin. And none of us want to be around people who are committed to their own glory, right? That's not something fun to be around. So, so why is this so wrong for us and so good for God? Well, friends, we're not the ones who deserve worship. We're not perfect. We're not holy. God is. God is the only being who's perfect, who's holy, who's worthy, and who's above all. And so for God, who's the only perfect one, who's the creator of all to be committed to his glory is good. For us to be committed to our glory is really bad because we're not deserving. We're not worthy like he is, friends. And do you realize 
if God was not interested in his own glory, if God was more concerned about our glory than his, he would cease to be God. Because God has to be perfect. And if he's holding up something as supreme, as ultimate, and it's not ultimate, he'd be falsifying. And so God has to, out of his perfections, be committed to his glory above everything else. And that's right and good for him. But friends, that is good for us. Because if God holds up anything besides himself as most supreme, as most fulfilling, friends, we will be empty. Because what our hearts need and long for is to know God and to see his glory, to see his greatness. And so when he says, worship me, friends, our hearts find satisfaction in doing so. When he says, look at my greatness, our hearts don't cringe at that. Our hearts find joy in seeing him for who he is. It's good for God and it's good for us. Friends, God's commitment to his own glory means that he will certainly, with confidence, work his power in us to accomplish his glory, his purposes. Go back to verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. How is God going to show himself strong on our behalf? How is God going to get glory in your life and mine and us as a church together? How is he going to do it? End of verse 20 here, by working his power within us. In other words, he's going to get glory by doing what we cannot do. He's going to take sinners like us who could never find eternal life on our own. He's going to give us a gift of eternal life that we could never find on our own. So these people like us bound in our sins, he's going to rescue us from our sins so we're no longer enslaved to them. He's going to change our desires and our affections and enable us to embrace all that he said that we are. And what do we do in response to that? We worship him. We praise him. And he gets the glory and we get the joy. The watching world looks on and they go, how do people from diverse backgrounds come together in unity? Everything that Seth talked about last week. They're puzzled by it because God does what we can't do and he brings diversity together in the church in unity and God gets the glory and we get the joy of diversity coming together. And don't forget, we saw that even the angels are watching on this. And as God works what we can't accomplish in our own life, the angels watch and marvel. God gets the glory, we get the joy, and the angels get the amazement and wonder of watching on to what in the world is God doing in this world. Friends, is anything too hard for God to do? Is there any marriage he can't heal, relationship he can't fix, stronghold of sin he can't set you free from, attitude he can't deliver you from? No. Because God can do more than we can imagine. He will do so in a way that is so obviously him and not us that he gets all the glory. So friends, that raises the question for us. If God can do more than we imagine and it's all his work in giving us belief and giving us holiness, what is our responsibility? What are we to do if this is all God's working, God's power? Well, I think our responsibility is pretty simple. Yet something we fail to do so often and that's to ask for it. I think we overcomplicate it sometimes, but we simply ask him. Go back to verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundant than all that we, what? What's the next word? Ask. There's an implication here that we're going to be asking God. He's able to do far more than any request we bring, but the implication here is that we're supposed to be bringing our request, <coughs> excuse me, before him. It's not even commanded here to be praying. All of scripture has this call for us to pray and to talk to God. It's assumed here in this text that we're going to be asking And if we're asking them to have confidence that God can do more than that. Friends, if we are seated at his table, we should be asking the one whose table we are seated at for the things that we need, that he already knows we need, but he's invited us to talk to him about. God can do more than we can imagine, but he expects us to ask him to do so. Friends, with that in view, I want to give us a few questions to think about to help us apply this to our lives this week. And also questions I want us to consider as we come to communion, come to the Lord's table. As we come to the end of Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 and see the riches of what Christ has done for us, that we're seated at his table, that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, the most appropriate response is to worship him and to be thankful and to remember the incredible cost that was paid so that we could have these things. 
And so as we come to communion, I want to ask us several questions to think about to help us apply this text to our lives this week, but also to prepare our hearts for communion. The first one is simply this. Friends, do you know that you can approach God? Do you know for certain that you can approach God? Do you realize what a radical thought that is, that we are invited to approach God? We think about in the Old Testament times, how fearful people were to be in the Lord's presence, a fear for being struck down. Don't send us, you go up on the mountain. We don't want to go. He might kill us. Like, there was this fear of being in God's presence. Think about the high priest who would go into the most holy place every year. What would he do? They put bells around his ankles so they could sit outside. Is he dead? Is he still moving? Is he still alive? There was such fear in being in the presence of God. Friends, we have no fear if we're a child of God. We are invited to his throne room of grace. We are invited to sit at his table before him. Do you know with confidence that you have this amazing invitation from your creator to approach him and to be in his presence? Because that only comes because of the sacrifice he's made. We can't march into his throne on our own. We would die because we're covered in sin. But if we have believed that Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed for us, then we can have confidence knowing that we come to him clothed in Jesus' righteousness. So friends, as you think about this amazing truth of Ephesians 3 here, first, do you know that you can approach God? Number two, do you have confidence you can talk to him? It's not just we approach God and stand in the distance in the corner of the room, kind of just shaking in the corner, hoping he doesn't notice us. But do you realize that we can come to his table, we can come to his presence, and we can talk to him? But this is a radical thought as well, that we can speak to the one who spoke the whole universe into being. We can come to the presence of the great I Am, the Almighty, and we can talk to him. He's invited us to talk to him about all of our needs. In fact, look at his invitation he gives us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. In this amazing text, we're invited to come before his throne of grace. I think we have it up there. Now I'll just read it for you. Ephesians chapter 4, sorry, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Listen to verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 4. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Do you hear that? Let us with confidence, not with trembling, not with fear, but if we know we're a blood-bought son and daughter of God, we have confidence to walk into his throne room of grace and make request of him to find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Friends, we come to communion, it's not just a reminder that Christ has died so I don't have to go to hell. It's a reminder that Christ has died to give me a new life, an abiding life where I can be in relationship with God and I can walk into his throne room covered in Christ's righteousness and talk to my creator who listens and who answers. That leads to our third question. Not only do we know that we can approach God, do we know we have confidence to talk to him, but number three, do you have confidence that he can do more than we imagined? Do you have confidence that when you talk to him and he answers, he can do more than you can imagine? Verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work in us. Friends, do we, when we approach God in prayer, do we actually believe he can answer? Or do we kind of ask because we're supposed to without really the confidence, knowing that God can answer and he can answer in ways that blow our minds because he's so much bigger? But perhaps the most important question for us as followers of Christ as we think about this and we think about communion this morning is number four, not only do we have confidence to ask him and trust that he can do more, but number four, do we trust him to do it his way? Do we trust him to do it his way? We have access to approach him. He invites us to bring our request. We know that he can do more than we can imagine. But friends, ultimately, do we trust him to do it his way and his timing? 
Because, friends, we don't see the big picture. He does. We're asking with our very finite, limited knowledge, and he sees the whole story of everything that has happened and will happen. And do we trust him in that? There's a guy named Brian Chappell, you've heard me quote before, has an amazing quote about that thought for us. If you're in a life group, which I hope you are this week, you're going to talk about this quote in your life group. But he says this, Paul does not limit the Father's care or ability to what we ask. There's too much of our humanity in our request. There's too much humanity in our request for them to govern how God responds. Because we are human, our requests are feeble and finite. We won't desert when we need meat. We won't success when we need humility. We won't safety when we need godly courage and Christ-like sacrifice. We ask for the limits of human vision, but God is able to do more. You catch that? We won't desert when we need meat. We won't success when we need humility. And we won't safety when we need courage and sacrifice. Friends, do you trust God that when you bring these requests, and he's invited you as his child to come into his presence, but when you come bringing your requests, do you not only have confidence that he can do more than you imagine, but do you trust him that the way he does more than you can imagine may look really different than what you're expecting? Because he is God and we are not. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Friends, what a great way to celebrate that truth by celebrating communion. We come to this time in the service. I want to invite anyone who is a follower of Christ. You don't have to be a member of Gateway, but you need to be a follower of Jesus to take this. If you know that you have a seat at his table, you know you are adopted, you're part of his family, that you've been redeemed and rescued from your sin, that he's forgiven you, you are welcome this morning to come and partake. But to you who are followers of Jesus as you come, my invitation to you is not to take and rush. This is not something we do out of ritual or habit. We do this to remember that everything we've been talking about, the fact that we can approach God in prayer, that we can have confidence that he will answer, that he will do more than we ask, but that he's going to do it in what's best. We have that because of the high cost. Yes, it was free to us, friends, but it came at an incredibly high cost. It required Christ's body to be broken on the cross. It required his blood to be shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Scripture is very clear. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So, follower of Christ, as we come to communion, you are welcome to come, but come and take with reverence. Come and ask the Spirit of God to search your heart, to reflect on these questions, to make sure there's no unconfessed sin in your life, to come ponder the greatness of God that you can even be approaching Him this morning. And in response to that and worship that, take communion and remember what Christ has done so that we have these things. I'm about to pray for us, and our praise team is going to come receive the elements first. And our deacons will direct you. If you're new to Gateway, what we'll have you do is we'll have you come forward, receive the bread and the juice, and return to your seats. There's no rush on time. You take some time when you get back to your seats to pray and talk to the Lord and make sure this is something that is an act of worship to you, not just a habit, that our deacons will help direct you. Would you pray with me right now? Father God, our hearts are filled with gratitude and just wonder for your kindness to us, that you have loved us with an everlasting love. But God, that you have chosen to show your glory through us, your people. And God, I pray this morning that we would just discover the wonder of that. Even as we take the bread and remember that Christ's body was broken for the forgiveness of our sins, so we see the juice and are reminded that, Lord Jesus, your, your blood was shed on that cross so that we could be forgiven. I pray our hearts would fill with thanksgiving and worship to you, the only one who's all glorious. And you'd be pleased with the way us, your people, worship you in response to all you've done. We will give you the glory. Thank you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen.